Hello, I'm Simon from Kent Libraries and this is On The Books, the library show born out of lockdown that talks about all things written word. Thoughts, ideas, inspirations and much, much more. So, sit back, relax and enjoy the conversation. Hello, welcome again to On The Books and my little digital slice of Canterbury. Today I have William Shaw joining us. He's currently in Brighton, but he has written books based in Kent. He is a crime writer. He is a journalist. He's had very varied and interesting experiences in his life. And I'm very pleased to have you on the show. Welcome, William. I'm very pleased to be on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I like to start with a pretty cold question that's quite nasty, I believe, but it does make the brain tick over. So I like to start with this question. What book changed your life? What book changed my life. This is going to be quite a boring answer then. So I was reading two books at the same time. I was reading um, Mill on the Floss by George Eliot. Yep. And I was reading um, Raymond Carver's um, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Right. Uh, and I knew that one was the book I was supposed to be thinking was worthy and intelligent. Indeed, I could see it was incredibly worthy and intelligent and really clever. And every paragraph was making me you know, sort of awed with its cleverness, which is obviously the middle of the floss. But I felt like Raymond Carver, you know, and there's a difference between writing and all that Victorian writing goes totally into the, into the soul and the brain and it's very cerebral, especially George Eliot, very brainy kind of writer. But what I discovered I was loving was this writing that for so American, if you've never read Raymond Carver, it's these short stories, yep. very much about just watching people, right. very much external, people just talk to each other. They don't really say what they're thinking unlike George Eliot, who has 15 <laughs> paragraphs. And I just thought, that's me. That's, that's how I see the world. I don't, when I'm looking at somebody, I don't know what they're thinking. The only clue I've got is what they're going to say. And actually, that really changed my whole idea about what books were. No, that's awesome. And that's not a dull answer at all. That's actually a really interesting answer. Um, it's been fascinating doing these, just listening to what books click with what people at what points in their lives and what they got out of them. Um, I think that is the joy of books. We all draw something different from the books that we encounter in our times and it will yeah, and, I, and I did love Mill on the Floss I really enjoyed it but it just suddenly felt oh well that's a book trying to be a book whereas the other one just felt like my life like your life that's I have to admit I've never read Mill on the Floss isn't that terrible of me <laughs> <laughs> it's quite wide um it's it's sometimes the classics where I've read quite a lot of the classics sometimes you feel that there are some books you're supposed to read and that yeah. I'm, I'm I get put off when someone says you're supposed to read something I don't know maybe it's me just being a little bit um uh just antsy I suppose but there we go um yeah so before becoming a crime writer you've done journalism uh you were you were a journalist I'm just curious um in terms of writing, um, the, the, the process of writing articles for journalism, how much of that translates over into writing novels? Are there skills that translate across? Well, obviously not enough, because I really became a journalist um, in order I could, so I could become a fiction writer, but it took me about 30 years to work out <laughs> how to do it. Um, but um, I think there's one thing that's really important, and it, it, you know, when, you're being, when you're submitting an article, there is somebody waiting down the line to put it on the page. Right. There's somebody who's taken photographs for it. There's an editor waiting. There's literally a timeline that's got to be done. So you don't, you don't think, oh, I'm not sure about this bit. You just have to write. You just have to get it there. Because it's literally other people's jobs that are dependent on you at that moment. 
the trouble with with fiction is very often we're just sitting there waiting for our moment of inspiration but actually it's much better to think in the first way and just get stuff on the on the um, page and journalism really taught me that that there's nothing to be afraid of about just writing stuff and that if you write enough stuff sometimes one or two ideas just accidentally happen right in there you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> uh, serendipitous, I suppose, would it be? Yeah. <laughs> so, what drew you to crime? What what made you become a crime writer? Well, I was I was writing all sorts of things, and I just really loved writing and loved making it up. Um, but I did struggle with it, and I was writing it for many years. And because I was writing non-fiction books, I had very good agent and things like that. But I, nothing I was writing kind of worked, and I knew it didn't work. Right. Um, and I'd always loved crime fiction. Then one day, I just started writing something, and I thought, oh, this is a crime fiction book. I know that. And I felt really happy at that point because I knew exactly what I was doing. And I think what I've realised since is that crime fiction really suited what I was trying to do. I, it, was, I, it took me ages to find out my form. And I think it does for a lot of writers. It's one of the lovely forms because you can actually become a writer in your 80s or 90s. Yeah. And I met somebody the other day who just got a book prize in her 80s for her first novel. And I was just thinking, wow. That's pretty good because that doesn't, you know, that unlike being a fashion model or a pop star, it actually doesn't matter when you start, as long as you've got something to say. Some people, it takes a long time to work out what they're going to say, me included. But crime fiction, I found, because it's just a really powerful genre. And mm. I, it's a powerful genre because um, it's half made up and half yeah. real. Right. You know, when we're writing crime fiction, we research it a lot. We put it in real worlds and we do that to make you scared. Because we know that I can make you believe that I've killed 15 people in a book if I tell you something else that's true. But I've right. got to tell you something you know is true. And it makes crime fiction really interesting because I think the reason why it's such a successful genre is it's a hybrid between fiction and non-fiction. Okay. Really and that speaks to the present. That's why everybody's so nuts about it. Yeah, I mean, it has to be said, in the library, our biggest, we tend to organise our library in alphabetical order, as you would expect, but we also do it by theme, by section, and our biggest section is crime and thriller, by a long shot. It is the most devoured uh, section we have in the, in, the, in the library. I volunteer at my library to do deliveries, which are obviously quite big at the moment, because people can't get out. And, you know, by, by kilo, <laughs> of what, I'm, what I'm carrying in these really weighty bags to people's doors, it's crime. It's I mean, crime. it's just, you know, it's, it's seven kilos to three crime. <laughs> I mean, that even translates over onto the, the, the small screen television, isn't it? I mean, the amount of crime dramas you have out there and like Swedish noir and, and all like cosy crime and all that. It, it's got its own subgenres and its own, both in terms of novelization and the small screen. It's just, we, we devour it, don't we? We do just devour yeah. crime. And it's a, it's a return of classic stories, because I mean, actually crime fiction is just the oldest type of story that's ever told. You know, all, all stories had their form and it's something very, very in our brain that it's basically the three acts, something really bad happens, it gets even worse, and then somehow it gets a little bit better. That's, but that's a crime fiction book. And that's yeah. the way all stories, Dickens, whatever, they're all in there. But if Dickens was publishing today, he'd have a lurid cover with a, somebody in a red Mac on the front because he'd, be, he'd be in the crime section. Yeah, I mean, I, I had this conversation with another author about Dickens and how we hold Dickens up to be sort of this literary giant. Um, in fact, all of our literary giants. But they were populist writers. Dickens yeah. was writing for the crowd. Shakespeare was writing for the crowd. You know, they, we, we, yeah. we think of them this highbrow thing, but and somehow we create this highbrow and lowbrow fiction, which I think is nonsense anyway. But Dickens was writing for the, the everyday person, just like, you know, what we consider to be 
the the crime genre, I suppose, but any genre, you know, unless it's not highfalutin literature, it was just devoured by the the, the everyday man. So yeah. that's uh, and the other the other thing that I've learned and you can really see in libraries is that we want to read what other people read. I didn't realise this. I always thought I was being incredibly elitist about my slim volumes of of uh, short <laughs> stories or whatever things like that. But actually, most of us read because we want to know what we want to. We like the discussion about books with other people. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a really interesting sort of insight in this day and age now that book groups have turned into a huge phenomenon. It's actually part of why we read, isn't it? To have something completely, it's not, not we don't have to talk about the news or politics, we just have a book. Or yeah. We can talk about it other, to other people and it's kind of a level playing field because if you put seven or eight hours into re reading a book, you've got something in common with somebody else who's read it. Yeah, totally. I, I completely agree with that, actually. That I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but now you've said that, yes, it, very much so. It, it, it is that, that common, yeah, you do like to talk about the books you've read, and if you've read a book and no one else has, you're like, oh, um, <laughs> right. Can you read it then, please? <laughs> I, I found that growing up. I was, uh, I was in a, a school, and I, my grandfather, um, bless him, introduced me to Asimov and... Philip K. Dick and Robert Heinlein at quite an early age. And my, my peers just weren't, they weren't reading anything like that. So I was devouring these books and having these conversations with him, going to my friends and going, have you read the, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's actually in my generation, because I suspect I'm a little bit older than you, Asimov, um, that was who, you know, we'd talk about those things. So that was our teenage boys. You know, it's either talk about Pink Floyd's latest album or the latest yeah. Asimov book. That was, your, you know, how you, Connected, and the weird ones, but the ones who like the Asimov, actually. <laughs> I think Pink Floyd was probably bigger than the Asimov. <laughs> um, I, I suppose I do like to ask um, because we are talking about the, like um, growing up. We um, obviously live in a world that is completely driven by devices. Now we're doing this over Zoom. Uh, lockdown has forced us to use and utilize technologies in ways that we hadn't done before or more so than we had been doing. In such a digital modern device driven world, does the book still have a place? Does the written word still have a place? You know, almost it has more of a place. I think, I think it's proved its, its case in a really interesting way. I think there was real fears. I mean, I was a music journalist. Right. And you could see the, the rug being pulled from the, world, from the world of music by this sort of stuff. But what it's, it's just as the gig became more important because that was the real element of music. So actually the books become more important because of digital. And I think you really see that because I think if you look at, I talked about book groups earlier, but if you look at the correlation, book groups really took off after the internet took off. Mm. And that's because the internet shows you the value of real experience uh, yeah. because you don't really get it on the internet. It's obviously this interview accepted. But, you know, it makes you want to crave something a bit more, actually. And I think it really establishes the value of those real experiences, whereas it's real live music or really reading a book and then talking about it. Mm. And so books have actually increased in value. And I think one of the unfortunate things is they also drove down in this country how much people are willing to pay for them. But right. actually people do value books more. And so books are stronger now than they've ever been because they represent an experience outside of all that. Ah, yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that, um, nearly every author I've spoken to about that and asked that question, because I was coming into it, I mean, obviously in the library we're driven by um, 
issues and, and numbers. And our, during lockdown, obviously, we couldn't issue anything, but our ebook publications went through the roof, which means people were reading and devouring books, which was just awesome. I mean, I think we got something like a 400% increase, which you just can't complain at. And it wow. did sort of highlight, I came into this with a slightly cynical, uh, we're all like on the screen, we're all like short videos, we all like TV now. And nearly everyone's come back to me and gone, no, books are actually doing really fine. And I have to say, yeah, I've been educated. Books are doing really well. Devices are in an age of devices. Yeah, and, and they've sold really well in lockdown because they represent a type of experience that people really crave when things are, you know, they, there's this kind of solidity to the experience. But the other thing about short form is that, is that television's gone long form, hasn't it? Do you know what yeah. I mean? It, actually, we're not the 15 second culture anymore. We actually will quite happily sit down, spend eight hours watching a single box set. Yes, very true. Um, yeah, I mean, I actually, from someone who is a bit of a film and TV fan in that respect, I find that glorious that you've now got long storm for storytelling on TV with production values that are amazing. So, so you, you are treating a TV series as one story rather than eight episodes of, of you know, short form. Yeah, it's all quite interesting, isn't it, really? <laughs> the way things change. I suppose we have to embrace change. That's the real key. You said you worked as a, a music journalist. How much did that inspire sort of later on your desire to write um, in non-fiction. Did that have any element or bearing? There was a few journalists that I used to hang around and with. Used to re we used to really admire American sort of journalism, which was much longer form, much more respected in lots of ways than British uh, journalism. And we all kind of wanted to, to write a sort of Truman Capote kind of right. cold blood book. We all wanted to do that kind of stuff. And that was, you know, and several of my friends have been very, you know, one of the people who I worked closely with wrote the book um, Adam Higginbottom wrote Chernobyl it came out last year yes and that's a classic bit of the stuff and I'm so jealous because it was a brilliant book <laughs> um, and it's exactly what we we're all trying to do was that right. kind of long-form um, journalism and it's really brilliant book and I, I sort of did a bit of that back in the 90s um, when um, you know Wrote, wrote some sort of long form non fiction books, especially one about hip hop, because I was really, I used to interview a lot of hip hop people. Yeah. And um, they told amazing stories. I wasn't necessarily the hugest fan of the music, I have to confess, but some of that I really liked. But the, the stories really fascinated me, for, especially from the West Coast stuff. But whenever I was interviewing these people, I was always interviewing them in a big hotel somewhere. Right. And I thought, this isn't, they're not, I'm not interviewing them in the area they're talking about. So I went back and I talked to sort of like 17, 18, 19 year old young men in South Central Los Angeles who wanted to become hip hoppers about their real lives. And I spent a year hanging around with them and I wrote a book called Westsiders. That was my kind of attempt at being American um, <laughs> at long fiction. It got published in America and sold about three copies there. So, you know. <laughs> I was going to actually ask about Westsiders because it does sound like a really interesting premise. It was a complete eye-opener, really, because it was, they were having such a catastrophic time in those inner cities. It was really awful, and the death rates were horrendous. And everybody I met, without any exception, had witnessed um, something awful or had something so awful happen to a close friend or family friend that it had really affected them. Everybody, nobody in, in that population of young people was exempt from it and to see that happening to what you realize what life must be after after wartime or something do you know what i mean yeah. with so many people traumatized and affected on the other hand people really wanted to tell their story probably you know at the time nobody was listening to that the, the spotlight had just passed on from from west coast hip-hop so they're all coming up with this stuff and nobody wanted it so just be going there i was thinking i was going to see a lot of hostility actually i got a lot of people saying no no fine come on i'll talk to you what they basically wanted was the most fundamental thing of somebody just to listen to their story in light of the lockdown, in light of 2020 being so um, 
such a, such a, a radical shift to what we're used to doing. Mental health is key. Um, we've, we've, as, as uh, you know, mental health has become a key thing that we are aware of. It's got much better. People who suffer from mental health no longer feel so stigmatized by it. I was just wondering, as a, a writer, and um, uh, you know, um, where you think that the written word has a place in good mental health. That's such a good question. Um, I think it really does. In that, you know, I think that that um, thing about I was talking about the people in South Central just wanted somebody to listen to their stories and some way of telling it. I think the written word has a real function in that. You know, I think um, allowing people to tell their stories is really important. It's not something in some ways that literature has been very good at. I think it's getting better. You know, I think there's a wider lot of people who are now thought of as having stories that are worth reading. Uh, and that's a gradual cultural change as well. I think, you know, I came, I mean, I'm obviously, you can tell by my accent, I'm a nice middle-class sort of um, <laughs> English boy. Um, and I think those were the people who were, had the only access to um, yes. to literature through much of the, you know, and it got, you know, more and more that way, I think through the 60s, 70s and 80s, it became more of a restricted thing about who was the people allowed to write. But one of the great things about being in crime fiction is that it's incredibly, so much diversity. Yeah. You know, mostly women are writing the most successful books right yeah. now. And it, I think it's leading, there's a lot of writers um, coming through um, from different British backgrounds. Um, Abhir Mukherjee, um, Anna Ramwer. Um, the names are all escaping now, I've got to say it. But, you know, I think because readers just want a good story, they're not looking through the same lenses as the literary gatekeepers. Yeah. And if, if somebody writes a good story, that's just what people want, you know. So I think, uh, I think it's been very ahead of the curve compared to, to literary fiction, to be honest. Yes, I mean, I wouldn't disagree, I wouldn't disagree with you. I, I, I see exactly where you're coming from on that one. It's interesting you mentioned the literary gatekeepers because I was talking to Mark Stay um, recently um, and he was talking about opportunities to publish now have radically shifted. So the, the usual route of agent, publisher, but whilst that's still there and still viable and the big publishing names have a lot of clout to get you out there, that's not your only route anymore. The literary gatekeepers aren't anywhere near as fearsome as they used to be. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, one of the problems with, with books is that you kind of, you know, it's really hard for anybody to publish a book because you need to get critical mass behind it. It is that thing, you need a book to be talked about. What we're, yeah. what we're saying either, but book only exists um, if enough people read it in a funny kind of way. So it's, so it's still hard that, and it, that is still policed by ideas of what a book ought to be. Right. Um, yeah. So it's been really interesting seeing some of the people like, I don't know, there's a writer called Mari Hanna who writes crime for ages and she's, she's um, a lesbian and, and she was writing about a lesbian cop. Nobody published it for years. Right. Um, and people said, oh, and all the editors would say, oh, I love the ideas. Oh, it'd be great if we could, but we can't kind of thing. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And of course now she's published, she's really successful because people yeah. have been waiting for that. But it was that sort of idea that, oh, I'm not sure there's a market for it. It's such an impediment to so much stuff. Yeah, it's 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 almost the chicken and the egg. You're never going to get a market if you don't have the stuff out there. Um, mm. And then they go, but there isn't a market, so you can't have the stuff out there. How, 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 yeah, yeah, it's a horrible one. Uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Good stories. I mean, human beings are storytellers. Our, our, our entire social history is storytelling. I mean, it's the thing that we remember from way back when, down our entire, entire human history on the planet, we've been storytellers. So... Um, I'm glad that we're carrying on the tradition and it hasn't died just yet. 
Um, speaking of such so, so storytelling, where do you find your inspiration? Where do you get your inspiration from to write? I come up with sort of kernels of ideas and um, I kind of force them to work in a kind of way. Do you know what I mean? I think there's a com you get conviction for a book. And it's sort of like, it's really nice having done quite a few now. I'm, I'm yeah. writing my sort of ninth and tenth books now. Yes. Um, and um, I think it's really nice that feeling that you know that it's going to work. But at the beginning, it was just like, oh, I've got a vague idea for a book. Can I make it work? I never used to plot anything out particularly. And so I have little kernels of ideas for books, like with um, The Bird Watcher, which is somewhere over your uh, right shoulder. Yes, yes, um, it's there, yeah, yeah. That was just, I wanted to write about landscape. And I began thinking about Dungeness. And I began thinking, well, who would live in Dungeness? Um, and... Then I began sort of thinking, oh, maybe I'll write about bees because there's all sorts of bees there. Then I thought, well, birds are probably more practical. I'll write about a bird watcher. Oh, what sort of person would be a bird? And so out of thinking about that, and then what if the bird watcher is a policeman? Oh, you've got, you keep notebooks. There's the same thing. And suddenly it all began to tumble out from there. But it starts from quite a weird and vague thing because it really just started with trying to think, well, what story would be set on Dungeness? Right. That's a really interesting idea. Um, because it's really fascinating how people get their ideas, uh, you know, where the where that moment that just starts to solidify comes from. That's and then you'll get, yeah, just what would who would live on. That's that's really cool. Um, it's just making me think now. That's that's just great. Um, the um, the you know the next one I read has got the last one that's just out is was I was just thinking, well, could I write a book about about um, planning? Yeah. <laughs> Because Screenfield planning, especially in Kent, it's a huge, great issue. I mean, like about where you build houses in Kent, it's massive, isn't it? You know, yeah. and it's increasing that way. And I just thought, well, well, what's the what's the story behind it? And then I spoke to an ecologist, and he said, well, if you're writing about planning, you should write about badgers. Yeah, yeah. I think, oh, okay. So it began to come from there. I thought, what if I have, what if I write about a badger who who unwittingly digs up some bones? You know. Yeah, and that starts just giving away part of the plot. I realised. <laughs> I mean, what, you did say you didn't use to plot very much, but I'm, I've always got the impression, and because I'm not a crime writer and I have never written anything crime, in fact, I'm not a writer in any way, shape, or form. I'm just a guardian of books rather than a writer of them. Um, but I always imagine that you must know roughly, you must know how or why or what, you're, what, what was occurring to lead to you. I mean, how plotted is it? Do you know and work backwards? Do you have a vague idea and just see how you get there? I'm just curious. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> I, I don't, and it's very wasteful. But I've, a couple of times, I'm just about to start a book, and I'm actually, I'm just working on plotting it now, because right. I just think I've got to on this one. And um, actually, with a book called Deadland, I really had to plot it, because actually, when I, when I thought of the idea, I thought it was a great idea, but not much happens in it. So I had right. to work it out to keep it tense, to keep yeah. somebody... But I actually really like not knowing particularly what happens. And then you, you get some idea of, of who did it, quite early on but in two books I've changed that because I kind of thought well if I knew who did it the reader might know who did it so what right. if I make it something else in fact my editor said it on the on the, on um the last but one he said yeah that, that that person who who did it in this book is actually just like the person who did it in the last book I thought oh my god he's completely right I've, I've created the same villain but what if this guy who is actually Five yards to the left of him actually is is the uh, is the guilty party, and actually works much better. Much better. It's just fascinating because yeah, I, I I've I've always imagined that it must be so meticulously plotted, and it's nice to hear that sometimes it just evolves. That, that's. Do you find that your characters actually have their own voices? Do you do you channel them, or do you um, do they do you find that sometimes they write themselves or not? 
It, so it sounds really awful when you say that, but it's kind of true. I mean, it yeah. sounds like, oh, my characters just write themselves. But it, it's, that's the fun of it, is when they do start talking back, especially because I've got one of the characters I write about. I write about this um, teenage girl. There's a detect my detective's a woman, um, yeah. a single mother, and she's got a, a 17, 15, 16, 17, depending on which book you read, year old daughter who is a bit of a pain in the ass. <laughs> the great thing about teenagers is, is they're so random. You know, they come up, they change their opinions really quickly. They come out with random stuff. And so because she has that license, she really uses it on, you know, I mean, she'll appear in scenes and just stick her neck into a scene so halfway through. And, you, and it, I, you learn, I think, to just write it down and go with the flow and see. And the next day you might say, well, that's pointless. That's really rubbish. It doesn't work at all. But occasionally, you, well, quite often, actually, you then find it's far better than you thought it was at the time. I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, I think part of the thing about rewriting is relaxing. Yep. and actually letting stuff flow. It's why being a journalist was so useful, because you just think, well, I, I want to fill some pages and I'll take out the rubbish afterwards because there might be something in there. And I think it's the same with characters, if you let them behave. In my very first book, My Detective, suddenly um, I was really unsure and I just thought, I'll carry on writing today. And I, so he climbed up a tree in, right. in Maida Vale, just uh, in the street. He began looking for a, a boy's kite, so he climbed up a tree. And I had no idea where that went in it. And like months later, I realized why he'd done that. It worked brilliantly in the plot, but I had no idea what he was doing at the time. No. So I just think it's worth relaxing sometimes and just putting that stuff in. Because a lot of, a lot of um, writing is taking stuff away, but right. you can't take it away unless it's there in the first okay. place. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's, it's the process of writing that I find fascinating because I've never done it. So it's, it's interesting hearing how each person approaches things and chips away or, or changes things it's it's really in, and what i have come to know doing these so far is that there is no one way to do it actually that's something i've learned i've learned complete relief to find that out i mean the nicest thing about about becoming a proper writer is then you meet other people who are published and much more successful than you and you say because you always assume you're doing it wrong yeah and that they're doing it right and you talk to them for five minutes and you realize that everybody a thinks they're doing it wrong but also <laughs> does it completely differently um, so, um, you know, especially for those people who are trying to write, you know, there isn't a golden way to do it. The, way, the best way is the way that works for you, you know. I wonder where that imposter syndrome comes from, because we find that in so many walks of life that some, with a lot of us are thinking, I'm going to get found out that I'm a total fraud. I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite an avid photographer. I love photography. And I, I, I seriously always think whenever someone sees my photos, they're going to go, well, he's just making it. He doesn't know what he's doing at all. You know, it's, it's obviously that, that that's not a... So it's, when do we learn that imposter syndrome? Because it does happen everywhere. Yeah, it does. And I think writing, you know, you talked about the um, use of writing for mental health and things. But one of the things that's actually, you know, a lot of friends of mine struggle with is you're writing. It's a ridiculous art form. Very few art forms do you make one thing over the course of one or two years. Even an even a oil painting can be done in 20 or 30, you know, a fine, huge oil painting can be done in 20 or 30 days and look magnificent. Yeah. You know, very few art forms are you totally on your own doing something uh, with just your doubt. And right. I think that can really affect you and you can really begin to disbelieve and you have an extraordinary um, lack, you know, really you can only judge your own books about a year after it's published. And you right. look at it and go, oh, actually that wasn't as rubbish as I thought it was at the time. <laughs> or if that really was rubbish. God, I wish they'd never published that. Yes. Well, why did I ever do that? Can I find a pulp <laughs> machine, please? Um, <laughs> And going back to what you said about Dungeness, and this is purely because of my personal interest, because I, I'm visual, I'm very visual. 
obviously from, from my own hobbies. But mm. What did you, what drew you to Dungeness? What, what did you, I mean, I'm assuming you visited before you wrote anything about it. Yeah, I had, and I knew it, knew it relatively well. One of the things is I, there's a few things, one of which I have a wooden shack myself right. down in Devon. And I, I, I wanted, I love it. And I wanted to make a story in a place like that. Uh, and it's obviously, one, that's one of the most beautiful things about it, is these beautiful idiosyncratic structures all around the place. Um, I wanted somewhere that had um, nether, weather and nature really present because I wanted to write, I mean, you know, I've been writing about, I wrote a series before set in London and I wanted to write something where nature was there because it's, it's a theme that runs through all the books. Yeah. Um, because I just thought at this time in human history when we are basically, <laughs> nature's kind of important in our lives right now for one way or the other. Yeah. You know, and uh, so I wanted somewhere where that was really was a character, and um, it's just down the. You know, I'm in Brighton. It takes two ridiculous hours to get there, or one hour fifty on a fast day. But it's actually only fifty miles away. Yeah, yeah it's really yeah. close, and psychologically, it's it's quite close. It's also got the idea of I think places where people are on their own quite a lot because in the winter it shuts down. You just have that few people in yeah. those jacks, and and people go there because they want to be on their own a lot. And you know, they're a very um very proud society and things like that and you know they have tourism and they put up with it and they engage with it but you know generally they by the end of a summer just like many of those places they think i'll just go home and leave us alone sort of and i like that you know so the people are there they're very sort of not not quite special people live there in the best sense of the word special do you know what i mean and so it's full of character and then the other thing is got a nuclear power station you've got a meta you've got a hulking great metaphor just sitting on the beach for whenever you need it yeah, always, always surprising because I've, I've grew up. I'm, I'm actually born, uh, um, I'm born in Kent. I've lived a lot of my life in Dover and Canterbury. So, so um, I'm currently still in Dover. So I can actually see on a clear day, Dungeness Power Station around the curve. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite easy and for me to see. Kent's a really interesting place. You know, it's a really. I think Kent is one of your is the sort of one of the bellwether counties. You know, where Kent goes is kind of where. England follows to a certain extent, not necessarily always in the good things or bad things, but you know, it's, it's, it's got this idea of being on the edge of England and thinking yeah. first of England, you know, defending England or whatever. And um, I just think it's, it, geographically, it's really interesting and has, has, you know, there's this incredible history there. And this also sense that it really is on the edge. Yeah, and the coastline and, and, and that whole sense of yeah, being exactly what you say on the edge or being the, the bastion. And then there are other times that we're the doorway. Um, it's an odd one. I, I, yeah, it's, it, you're right with Kent's history. Um, but being that I've grown up here, you almost assume that that's the way it is everywhere, but it isn't. It's, 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 it doesn't work like that, I swear. You know, oh, yeah, I thought about that. But, um, I, I once had um, friends over from the United States, and they were, um, I took them for a walk on the White Cliffs of Dover, because obviously I lived in Dover, and they looked over to, the, to their right as we're walking toward, from Dover Castle towards St Margaret's, and they went, what's that? And I went, it's France. And they went, pardon? It's, it's, th- th- that's France. You, you can see France. Like, but that's another country. I was like, yeah, it's just <laughs> over the water. <laughs> like... I used to love it when, when your phone, you know, it doesn't matter now that we're all on roaming, but when you used to go over there and your phone signal would suddenly switch over to France, you'd suddenly find, go on, just be charged, like five pounds. <laughs> Yeah. Dungeness was notorious for that actually. <laughs> been down there and you know, um, <laughs> getting totally off topic of words and going on to just Kent countryside. Um, I suppose I would like to ask 
because I'm working in a library and I do have to ask this and, and, and there is to be a little bit of talking about libraries. What do libraries or what have libraries ever meant to you? I went to public school right. and um, didn't enjoy it very much. Okay. And so what libraries meant to me was a bit of refuge and a way of escaping the school. Um, and I can remember going and all the books in there would be really old, any, any of the fiction ones. So it's literally, I was, I'd read Biggles books right. you know, in the library. Captain W.E. Johns, because they took me away from this horrible place, you know, and so they meant that to me. And um, what else? I mean, I wasn't, you know, I was, uh, my, my, um, I lived at, but the reason I was at public school is my dad was working abroad. He, he used to run libraries in, 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 um, in African cities and things like that. So they meant that to me as well. You could see libraries as being this thing was, this is, he's a, and people used, who used to go to those libraries used to love them because they were such a brilliant resource. And so they meant that. And it still does. I mean, they're always a place where you just sort of go. And I like, I mean, I still go to libraries because I love the way people lay out libraries. <laughs> you know. um, I like bookshops because the way they like bookshops. But that, in a bookshop, they're trying to sell the books to you. Yeah. But if you go to a library, it's very hard not to pick up a book, especially these days. People are really clever about the way they put books around the, the library and stuff like that. It's, you know, when I was a kid, libraries just had the books like that. But now it's sort of like that, you know, librarians really engage with what books are. So a visit down, I've got a brilliant library down the road. Um, and it's just always, you know, you'll always walk out with a book because yeah. of the way they're out. And I like that. It's far more, it's actually more random and idiosyncratic because librarians don't have that sales agenda. They just, if there's a book they think people ought to read, they'll put it cover out. Yeah. You know, and that's great. It's very true. Um, and the worst thing you can probably do, or the best thing, the way you look at it, is engage one of us in a conversation about what books we're currently reading, because we will load you up. I mean, that's how that will work. Like, and do you, do you read, I mean, because my reading's actually slowed up as I've got older, which is really odd, because so many people I know read so quickly. But do you, you read a lot of books every week then, do you? I try to. I, I do. I'm quite a voracious reader personally. I do read a lot. Um, mm. The joys of being a se semi-insomniac is I do actually get quite a lot of late nights where I can't sleep, so I, I read. Um, the, the drawback to working in a library, and I get this a lot, it's like, oh, you love books, you're in a library, that must be awesome. It's like, but I work in a library, I don't actually have time to sit in the library and read. That, that, yeah. I don't get to read half of the books, I, I get to give them some for other people to read. But yeah, I, I do, I read quite a lot, I do read quite voraciously. Um, so... When did you know you wanted to be a writer? I mean, either journalism or, or, or novels? Really, really odd. And I did live, you know, like I said, my dad, mum and dad were really into books and I just wanted mm. part of that. So it was just like, I never really thought, I always imagined I'd do it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had that sort of privileged access to lots of books when I was a kid. They were just sort of lying around the place. So I, I tried doing it. It took me just a very, very, very long term to work out how to do it. <laughs> At least you kept at it. That's that's something. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was quite interesting. Like, I had this really great agent, and he's a lovely man. And but at one point, I'd written a book, uh, which never got published because it was terrible. And I what? gave it to him, and he said, "William, don't do that again." And he meant it in the really kindest possible way because he kind of, you know, he wants me to carry on writing the the, the nonfiction stuff. Um, but actually, what's really interesting, and you meet this with so many people, is they don't stop. They cut, you know, it's what you do. You just keep keep um, writing, and it's you know, it's great. That's good. Uh, so you just carry on. I do have a question for all writers that might help aspiring writers. How do you deal with the dreaded blank white page? Well, or screen in these days. See, I find that a really hard question to answer because it's been so long since I've ever had 
any fear of it. And I don't yeah. mean that in a really pompous way, but the best thing is just to write words on it, even if it's the same word over and over and over. And I really think that the, the best thing is just to fill it with any old nonsense. Right. Uh, uh, and not to be afraid. Just not to be expect that when you, what you fill it with is going to be much good um, first time. You know, just carry on filling it. And then after a few times, it's, it's actually about, you know, the more words you write, there will be something in it. It's a bit like um, quarrying or something. Right. Okay. Uh, you will eventually find a little nugget in there. But it just means you have to shift a lot of stones sometimes to do it. But don't be ashamed of the stone. Do you know what I mean? Don't be ashamed of all the rubble. Um, and I'm quite happily, I was talking to the, there's a, the writer John Connolly, you know, he writes, he writes, when he writes a novel, apparently he writes two versions of it. He writes one that is just gibberish and right. he just finishes it. And then he goes back to it and he says, oh, that bit's good, that bit's good, that bit's good. All right, I know what I'm doing now, but he has to write an entire rubbish version of this book before he writes a good one. And wow. I, I'm still just, yeah, and I just thought that was a lovely way to, for somebody to write. I mean, it's, you know, he must be a very fast writer because he writes a very wide book every year. So he must to write too wide. But he just says, I write a complete rubbish draft where most of it's absolutely appalling. The characters are weak. The, char- the plot's all over the shop. And I just think, yeah, you, that's because it, you've got to go through that for a lot of people. As we said, all writers are different. Um, I'm friends with the writer Ellie Griffiths and she writes a couple of books a year and she says, oh, I only write one draft. Really? And I, I want to strangle her at that point. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> I never redraft. It's always just how I want it. I, said, oh. <laughs> I don't really want to strangle her. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. No, that's, that's, well, well, yeah. I mean, unless it's now the the, uh, the hidden plot of one of your next novels. No, a fellow novelist murders other one for being able to uh, write one draft novel. Um, <laughs> I suppose I do like... Um, to ask about inspiration in terms of other authors, because I, I was once um, blessed to meet an, one of my heroes who's an author. Um, 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 and he basically asked him something like, and he went, well, I read widely and there were other authors that I, I, I listened, uh, I liked a lot that, that basically gave me the, the, the jump off to try and do some stuff on my own. Do you have any authors that inspire you uh, as, a, as a writer? I mean, lots of people do in terms of different approaches, not necessarily in terms of the book. I mean, I mentioned Ellie Griffiths. I think she's really inspiring just because she's such a good attitude um, to writing and reading and all that stuff. And, you know, she's always so joyful about it. I think she enjoys writing so much. And I think that's really inspiring. And I think actually the writers who seem to enjoy themselves doing it, a real, real pleasure. Um, Because it's a real, you know, the idea that you're you're just making stuff up and people want to to listen to it or read it is, is... that's pretty good. Um, really inspiring in that kind of way. There was a writer called um, uh, Ken Bruin when I when I was writing um, when I I'd done this West Siders book. Um, I went over to Ireland to do a literary festival in Galway, and he was the guy who introduced me, and then took me around the pubs at Galway. And and he was a crime writer back in the day when Ireland didn't have crime writers. They're ten a penny now in Ireland. And they're really brilliant. <laughs> He was just so lovely and he signed this book to me and he said, oh, you should have a go at this. So just, you know, this was like sometime in the early 90s. And um, he was definitely inspirational. I was just thinking, well, actually, that's not a bad idea. It took me, you know, took me 10 years to finish the book. But, you know, um, yeah, lots of them. I mean, in terms of individuals, um, I'm not very good at having posters on the walls or absolute heroes. Like even, you know, the right side, I very rarely read every book by somebody. Yeah. There's a writer called Steve Kavanagh. Yep. 
who had written a couple of, of uh, court procedurals. And then he said, I just, I need it to be more than this. So he just wrote um, a book called 50, 50, no, 13. He just yeah. said, I need, I, I, I want to write a blockbuster. That'll right, do it. Okay. So he just sat down and said, well, that's actually quite inspiring. Just in, I think to have that incredible ambition that you want lots of people to read your book, you know, and that was very inspiring. Yeah, it's interesting hearing what people say about why they're inspired by other writers or, or, or what elements that people take from it. Um, one of the things that I was curious about, actually, was you, you, later, you, one of your main characters is a woman. Uh, um, do you, this is purely because I'm not a writer, so do you find that, you, that, that, that writing a, a woman, being that you're a man, is that, it, does that lead to any... Uh, or do you do you find that a problem, or do you did you not even think about it, or is it just? I, I thought about it a great deal actually, right. because I was very unconfident about that, which is ludicrous. Because actually, men and women women aren't that different. And no. Part of the job of a writer is to inhabit somebody else's skin. Yeah. Um, uh, but I was very nervous about it because I think men writers often get women heroes very wrong. And yeah. um, although he provided the um, the. I'm published by a publisher called Quercus, and of course, they their big money was made um, when they paid me my huge first deal by Steve Larson. Right. And you see, I always hated the Steve Larson books because right, okay. of the way he wrote women. Because he wrote, if he's going to write a woman, she has to be a feisty, tattooed, go get some fe vengeful feminist. Yeah. Okay. Whereas I actually think I always think that's not the women. I mean, I know lots of feisty, tattooed, <laughs> uh, vengeful women, but you know. They also have other sides to them. You know what I mean? It was like, I, I think men tend to overcompensate so badly when they um, write women. And so I was trying very not to do that and trying to write a woman who was just actually had um, things she cocked up quite badly, like right, all yeah. of us do. And um, would also be, you know, interesting just as a person as much as a woman. Um, so I thought that was, that was quite a good starting point. What was really interesting though, is having written two heroes, because I first wrote a man Hero, male hero, and then I wrote this woman hero. Yeah. I get pulled up so much about what she does. Really? That if she if she goes down to the dark cellar on her own, there's always somebody or if I, they're then doing the this. Say, well, I think it's ridiculous she did that. I think it's really ridiculous. And it's like, but if I'd made if I'd made the bloke do it, you'd have you'd made for it ridiculous, but you wouldn't have tutted about it in quite the same way. And I think it's really interesting how much women characters get judged. Given that, I mean, I've given my my um woman a sidekick who likes a bit of a drink and sleeps around quite a lot but yeah. I, I couldn't have done that with my main character despite the fact the history of male PIs or whatever all those they they do that incessantly they, they drink and they sleep around a bit the moment you make a woman do it, it men and women read that in a different way if it's a woman doing it and I think you have to be aware, very aware of that because you still have to make these people um, heroes and but but yeah my, my character gets judged just for doing the same stuff as, as a bloke would do in a way that it's completely different. I think you know that's that's a bit curious, but I quite like that. That says a lot about our society, really, doesn't it? That's kind of an interesting. A lot of writers I know who write women have said the same thing back to me. That they just, you know, and a lot of them, you know, it's not necessarily they might deal with it in very different ways. But it, you know, and this isn't just from male readers. You know, no. I get judgy stuff from all readers. You know, it's the point of a story is that you do want to send the person down to the cellar so that you're yeah. going, don't do that, don't do that. Um, but when a woman does it, they're often criticised for doing that as a person because, oh, she should have called for backup. Whereas they'd never say that if it was a bloke doing it. It's, it's insane, isn't it, really? Um, and it just shows you that, that there is underlying attitudes that we like to think are disappearing but might not actually be as gone as we thought they should be. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think it's all, yeah, it's all changes slowly, but, you know, I mean, you know, on the other hand, I am in a genre where, where um, it's, I would say, 70% of the best writing is by women in crime fiction, you know. Yeah, I mean, you do have Agatha Christie to live up to. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I can't remember. I mean, I was just, um, I'm, um, yeah, I don't know why I said that. That's just by the way. <laughs> right, um, I suppose uh, one of the other questions I like to ask is, um, if you could have written any book, if there was any one book you could have written, what do you think it would be? Wow. How? <laughs> how I'm really rubbish at that because I never have, like I say, I'm a real no heroes sort of person. What book would I like to have written? I really, okay. Um, the, the, one of the reasons why I wrote about Dungeness was a book called Waterland by Graham Swift. Right. Uh, and, you know, a book is only perfect because of the time you read it at in your life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, when I read Graham Swift, it was the perfect mixture. Of, it's a murder mystery. It would have been, he, if that had been his first book, he'd have been a crime writer. Right. But it's a murder mystery set in the fence. And it managed to meet, mix um, natural history, which is part of the reason I quite like, I wanted to write around Dunnes because of Romney Marsh, because I was so, yeah. because I so love Waterland as a book. And it's, 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 but it's got the natural history of the eel in it as one right. of the running theme, which was being discovered a lot with only just discovered that they spawned in the Sargasso um, and then went all the way up to these rivers in in, um, in Norfolk to actually um, uh, breed, actually, that's right. Yeah, they breed there and they spawn in the Sargasso. And it's just like a thousand mile journey, it's crazy. Um, and and it's just, um, yeah, so I love the fact that mix of, of uh, great drama, great landscape writing, and then this incredibly strong natural history um, in there. And that mixture of, I love a book where you learn something as you're reading it, which is why I quite like, you know, if you're writing about um, badgers as I did in Gravesend to actually go and speak yeah. to a few badgers, you know, and I, I, it's a pleasure to write with that sort of expertise, but also I, I think that's what, where the excitement of, of a lot of fiction comes in is the bits that aren't fiction. Yeah, making the, the bits that are real, very real, is what draws people in. Um, you know, I, I get that completely. Um, so, um, since you said, mentioned when we first started chatting that they're new, I also, and I can see them in the background, my bookshelves are a disaster. My bookshelves look like books have been put in sideways, there's bits all over them. Um, so, how do you organise your bookshelves? Being like I work in a library, um, by genre, is it by name, or is it just they're on the shelf? I am... Um, you know, come back in six months because these are. I'll just put these there, so I've, I've had time to put them. But generally, I always move into a new place and then don't organise them properly. They just put there. So this is a real pleasure. But I've got one large bit of history, one large bit of of nature writing, one large bit of just books that I've read for research of of stuff, one large bit of books that you know go back a long way for me, uh, one large bit of crime books that I love. It's so being able to divide up in that way is quite good. But not by colour and not by size. I don't like, I, if anybody organises their bookshelves by colour, I worry. I think there's probably an accident in that. Yeah, it might, might hint at something you're probably not comfortable with. It'd be almost like walking into Hannibal Lecter's study and going, this feels a little bit strange. <laughs> but people do, don't they? I mean, they get all the orange spines together and all the green spines and all grade them even worse. I'd just be worried that's a bit too... Um, that's a bit too scary. <laughs> I mean, if it works for them, it works for them. But I must admit, I, I would struggle with that. It was like, because you would just get 
all sorts of authors mixed together. I mean, just like you'd have one, that must be quite strange. But do you know the, the most important thing about having bookshelves is if you keep books, if you want to go back to them or think you might. So you've got to kind of know where they are. And one of the, you kind of develop a spatial memory with your shelves, don't yeah. you? Sometimes you think, oh, where do I see that book? I think it's sort of top, sort of right. You know, you've got a sort of idea of where it is. And I think that's my dream bookshelf. It's sort of one that sort of has that general sense of where you last put it. Where you last but it's a bit like a book, isn't it? One of the nice things about physical books, that if there's a bit of a book, that you really loved. You kind of remember whether it's left-hand page or right-hand page, don't you? Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's really interesting. You've got a sort of spatial thing with, with the stories, which is really weird. It doesn't really work so well with e-books. <laughs> no, e-books are a little bit harder. They put the old tab in, but it just doesn't feel the same. <laughs> okay, um, I suppose we are beginning to run out of time. We've been talking for an hour now. That's, that's, that's flying by. How did that happen? Um, I suppose I, I really should ask, so what's next? What have you got in the pipe work? My next book coming out in May is a book called The Trawler Man, um, which is another in the, in the same detective series. Um, and it's set um, around, I heard a great story when I was in Brighton, um, yeah. doing, writing a newspaper article once. And I was speaking to this woman who's a fishmonger who said, yeah, I used to be married. Um, I lost my husband at sea. Right. Um, and I was actually having an affair with another person while he was lost at sea. Um, but I couldn't marry him for seven years. And I said, why not? Because you, you, the body was never found. So right. she had to wait seven years before she married this, this man. And I thought there's a great plot in there somewhere. Uh, and so I've moved that plot onwards uh, to, to modern um, Folkestone. And I went right. out with a very nice trawler man um, who took me out on a um, Folkestone trawler overnight yep. so I could get my trawling facts right. And he was really lovely. It's fascinating, the trawling thing. I, people forget that it's active in Folkestone. Folkestone's a working harbour in that respect. Yeah. Um, you, you kind of get the impression in this area that it's all become ferries and that's about it, but that's not true at all for the ports around here. You still get No, that. it's a hard job and people have a really specific lot of knowledge that's been, it's very generational and family-based and, it, you know. Um, but, you know, it's also very nice to be out looking at Kent from, from offshore, actually, from especially sea. in the night. It was, Watching the dawn come up over, over you know, um, um, Dover, actually, pretty much. Uh, the sun was coming up over Dover when we were out. It makes Dover look much prettier than some other views. <laughs> uh, it's been my mission in my photography to make sure that Dover can look pretty. It does look pretty, but a lot of the time it doesn't. Um, but yes, sunrise, uh, uh, yeah, sunrise on the Kent coast is beautiful. Um, we were very yeah. lucky. Very lucky. Well, sunrise on the southeast coast is just glorious. Well, on that note, I have to say that we have run out of time. So it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It's been really interesting. Um, we wish you all the best with the next novel. And thank you for being on our show. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Well done. You've made it to the end. William's new book, Trawler Man, is available now. and we found in the library or any good bookshop. If you'd like more information on our digital offer, visit our website, kent.gov.uk forward slash libs, or see the link below. If you want to see what we're up to on our social media, follow us on our Facebook page, also link below. If you've liked the video, maybe throw us a like or subscribe. My name's Simon, this is On The Books, we'll see you soon.